The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. Issues such as schizophrenia or bipolar, there's a drastic increase in the rates of developing those disorders in themselves if they start using cannabis early, especially in adolescence, and it increases with heavy use. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call is based on an article from October 2018 in the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Reconciling the Discrepancies in Medicine's Relationship to Medical Marijuana. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Davis Bradford, who's an assistant professor in the Division of General Internal Medicine and Addiction Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We hope this will help you better think through the process of working with patients who should receive medical marijuana and those who maybe should not. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Davis, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I recently heard you give a talk on medical marijuana and knew that you were exactly the right person to answer all these questions that I've had in my mind, and I assume many of the listeners have had in their mind since medical marijuana has been legalized in more and more states. I guess the best place to start is to better understand uh, the endocannabinoid system, sort of the physiology of cannabinoids and why they're sort of different. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Centaur, for having me. So uh, this was a great opportunity for me to learn more about how cannabis works in our body. And I thought the perfect place to start was on how our natural endocannabinoid system works. And that's how our own, we have endorphins that are similar to opioids in our in our body. We have similar endocannabinoids or chemicals in our body that are similar to how cannabis affects the body. And so the endocannabinoid simply is a complex system dispersed throughout the body. And there's two main receptors. Uh, CB1, which are mainly in the CNS, um, and CB2, which are in immune cells. And we have uh, complex signaling and really focusing on the CB1 receptors. It is a, a receptor found our presynaptic uh, neurons, and it's a complex signaling where it's actually retrograde signaling. So there's actually the endocannabinoid chemicals get released from the postsynaptic neuron and then go back and bind on the CB1 receptor on the presynaptic neuron and regulate things that we really know about, like GABA and glutamate, which we learn about in medical school, but we don't really learn a lot about endocannabinoids that regulate these other uh, neurotransmitters. I assume that being starting from postsynaptic to presynaptic changes things in some physiological way. Yeah, you can kind of think of them as more of 
modulators, they're modulating other neurotransmitters than thinking them of neurotransmitters themselves. So they're modulating those things like GABA and glutamate, going back to that presynaptic neuron and regulating the release from the presynaptic neuron of neuro, other neurotransmitters. Now, when most of us think of, of uh, marijuana, we think of two major cannabinoids. We think of CBD and THC. I know there are more and we'll get to that, but maybe you could contrast CBD, which we see for sale everywhere, and THC, which uh, you need a prescription for. Yeah, so I'll start with um, THC. Uh, THC is the psychoactive exogenous cannabinoid found in the cannabis sativa plant. And it mainly works on the CB1 receptor um, and it uh, binds the air as a partial agonist. Um, so it uh, directly affects this CB1 signaling pathway in the brain, thus giving it psychoactive properties. We know a little less about CBD. We do know that it um, works kind of throughout the body, but a little less predictable in terms of the binding um, that it does. And we know that THC does bind to CB1, but know a little less about how exactly how CBD works. Okay, so now we have the chemicals, but then we have the drug that comes from the plants, either store-bought marijuana in the States and where it's legal, under the cover bought marijuana in, in uh, other states, but even in states that's legal, and medical marijuana. But they all come from the cannabis sativa plant. How is that different? And has that changed over the last 30 years? Cannabis sativa is, is the, the plant that we think of traditionally as marijuana, and it's changed drastically over the past 20 to 30 years. Um, we really think about marijuana and cannabis as uh, in degrees of potency in terms of how much THC it has. And if we think about going back 30 years ago, 4% or less potency in terms of 4% of the plant containing THC. And now that's well over 16%. So um, a three to fourfold rise in how potent uh, traditional strains are of cannabis plants now, making it more psychoactive. Um, so for recreational use, that um, it certainly can be appealing. And that's really changed how we think about the application of medical marijuana as we think about that this, this plant has changed as we cultivate it to produce a desired effect, pr primarily for recreational use. But now we have to think about what are the medical applications. Now, there, there are some approved drugs by the FDA that use THC and CBD, I think, is over-the-counter. How is that different from the, from the plant cannabinoids and why not just stick with the FDA-approved cannabinoid drugs? Yeah, I think this is where a lot of the dialogue breaks down. Um, we try to uh, extrapolate studies that are primarily done on these single compounds. Um, for instance, we have a, a CBD compound that is pharmaceutical grade, that is FDA-approved for certain epilepsy syndromes. That's the Lennox-Gastaut-Dravet syndrome and the tuberous sclerosis complex syndromes. That CBD compound has been FDA approved for these certain, mainly childhood epilepsy syndromes. But we try to extrapolate that to this uh, the cannabis plant, which has far less CBD than is found in this FDA approved product. Um, and so sometimes we try to extrapolate when their data is simply not there. We also have synthetic THC. Most people know about dronabinol, but dronabinol is approved for two conditions, chemotherapy 
uh, induced nausea and vomiting and uh, HIV AIDS related cachexia. Um, we also have nabilone, which is another FDA approved synthetic GHG that is um, approved for chemo induced nausea as well. And so really thinking about most of the studies have been done on these synthetic compounds or these extracted single compounds, and we can't really apply that directly to the whole plant. So we don't really have much data. Why do we not have data on whole plant usage? Yeah, that's primarily been because of the scheduling of cannabis as a Schedule One uh, drug under the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. And so the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 made cannabis or marijuana a Schedule One drug, which means that it says that it's purely uh, has no medical usage and that it's listed as a, quote, drug of, quote, abuse. Um, and so this is really limited research around cannabis because of the scheduling. And one thing that the American Society of Addiction Medicine recommends is rescheduling that where we can have lower barriers to doing research in the future on medical marijuana. Okay. And that's one of the big points in, in the article that uh, kicked off this discussion. As people prescribe medical marijuana, are there potential harms? Some people seem to think marijuana is, well, we certainly don't see as many people in the hospital because they use marijuana as we do because they used alcohol, but is it harm-free? Uh, certainly not harm-free. So approximately one in 10 people that use cannabis go on to develop a cannabis use disorder or cannabis addiction. And so those who do not think that uh, cannabis addiction can develop is simply untrue as a board-certified addiction doctor at seen and treat, treated patients that have cannabis addiction. And that's more than just physical dependence is where it starts to spill over and to start affects, affects social and physical functioning in their life. So that's one harm. Um, but there are also several other harms that we've seen. Um, we've seen these play out in states that have legalized marijuana. We've seen an increased rate of uh, motor vehicle collisions involving THC and marijuana use. Uh, we've also seen an association pause their association with lower um, IQs and lower job attainment later in life, especially when marijuana use has started earlier in, as a teenager. And if I remember right, uh, there's some association with adolescents using marijuana and uh, psychotic diseases. Right. And that's where we particularly want to caution our patients when we're discussing both recreational and medical marijuana use. It's one of the clearest associations we know that especially for those patients with first degree relatives with severe mental health issues, um, such as schizophrenia or bipolar, that there's a drastic increase in the rates of developing those disorders in themselves if they start using cannabis early, especially in adolescence, and it increases with heavy use. So as, as an addiction medicine uh, expert, are there any indications that you would use to prescribe medical marijuana? Yeah, I would, I would start by asking, can we use an FDA-approved product first? Um, and so thinking about the medications we reviewed earlier um, and thinking, can we use one of those medications that are THC derivatives or synthetic THC? are CBD compounds that are approved for this first. Um, and then after that, when I'm con contemplating, is there a benefit of medical marijuana? Uh, I'm going to have this frank discussion about a family history of uh, psychotic disorders. And then 
if the patient has an evidence-based indication for a potential benefit. And those are really only really three that are come to mind. And that's, again, chemo-induced nausea and vomiting, spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. There's also a signal for spasticity in other upper motor neuron diseases like ALS. And then lastly, uh, for chronic pain. And the data there for chronic pain is where we have the most hope, but I would say the still very murky and gray in terms of the benefits. And that really gets to what you already mentioned is the lack of research in things like chronic pain. Uh, When I talk to my non-medical friends, they believe that if we just let everybody smoke marijuana, then we wouldn't have an opiate crisis. I know that's not that that's overstating uh, the beliefs of many people, but I'm pretty sure that, that I have some friends who believe that. But we can't get there, can we? No, and we actually have really good studies uh, in states that did have medical marijuana laws compared to those states that don't have medical marijuana laws and looking at what happened in overdose deaths. And initially in data before 2010, we did see a signal of decreasing overdose deaths in those states that did have medical marijuana laws, which was a hope for us that maybe medical marijuana would be a way to treat patients with those struggling with chronic pain that may also have comorbid opioid use disorder and may decrease opioid death rates. However, as we've looked at sort of the same data set of those states with medical marijuana laws and those without in data expanded through 2017, we've actually seen a reversal of that. And we've seen death from overdoses from opioids increase in those states with medical marijuana laws. So I would say that this, we should have some caution here on how we interpret the data early and how we continue to follow that over the time. And that medical marijuana is is not a treatment for opioid use disorder, and it's not even something that's going to divert the opioid crisis. So you and I live in a state that is just now uh, getting medical marijuana. Plenty of listeners live in states with medical marijuana, but haven't haven't prescribed it yet. If you were going to sit down with people in primary care anywhere, what should they know about the medical medical marijuana laws and what should we be doing as a nation? And I know that uh, the American Society for Addiction Medicine has a, a policy on this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts first about what we need to understand about the laws and what, what we hope to see uh, us have more knowledge in the future. Yeah, I'll start with the medical marijuana laws in each state, and that really requires Um, each of us as physicians and other clinicians becoming familiar with our state laws and how that process will work because it is different in every state. Um, The general process is the same, but there are some nuances. Um, And that process is that for physicians and sometimes other clinicians that would like to be involved in this process, that they become approved by the state medical board to become certified that they can attest that a patient has a condition that may meet, may have benefit of being on medical marijuana. And usually they have to certify that that patient would be eligible for medical marijuana, which would then allow the patient to get a medical marijuana card or traditionally or medical marijuana license that would then go to a dispensary. Um, This is a medical dispensary to get medical marijuana um, from the dispensary. So they would not, it would not be prescribing in the traditional sense of a medication, which is a big difference um, in how this medication works compared to other medications. And where I have a a big problem as a provider is 
why are we treating this drug different than other drugs? What would you like to see happen over the next five to 10 years in terms of understanding whether medical marijuana is useful in other situations and in what situations? As I alluded to earlier, and as highlighted in this um, article from the annals, is that we really need to lower the barriers to research and specifically the research to whole plant derivatives and not these single compounds. And in order to do that, the way to expedite that is to reschedule marijuana um, from Schedule 1 to a, a lower controlled substance such as Schedule 2, which we think about cocaine, cocaine is a Schedule 2 drug. So really moving it down to a schedule where we can study it more appropriately and also think about it federally, kind of making this accessible for patients with uh, both research and in a traditional sense um, that we use the same FDA approved approval process that we use for other medications for medical marijuana. Any final thoughts for uh, our listeners? Final thoughts. I think there um, is a lot we don't know. We clearly need more research in medical marijuana. We also need more education as clinicians. And so this is a great way to start by listening to this podcast, but also going and investigating your home state's uh, medical marijuana laws and also learning a little more about recreational cannabis use and learning that there's a long history of criminalizing medical marijuana or recreational marijuana rather that has had harms too and that both rescheduling and potentially lowering the criminalization of marijuana as a recreational drug will help us achieve equity for both those that use this medically, but also recreationally as well. Davis, thank you so much. Uh, I feel quite a bit uh, more knowledgeable than I did 20 minutes ago. Thanks, Dr. Sandor. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this interesting discussion, we started by discussing THC, which is the psychoactive ingredient in uh, marijuana, and CBD, which is a n- not a psychoactive uh, element. Uh, we discussed the physiology, which help, better helps me understand uh, how all this works. And then we went to the point of not having good data on the full plant usage of marijuana. And that's because marijuana is still a Schedule One drug, which means we cannot do research on that drug because it is considered harmful. Both the article and our discussion really were concerned about the lack of good data on the full plant because there are more chemicals other than THC and CBD in actual marijuana. Then Dr. Bradford gave us some good advice on uh, when patients come to you and want medical marijuana and you're trying to make a decision about it. And he said first is to see whether or not you can use the single-use chemical approved drugs, uh, and we had a discussion about those. And then we finally had a discussion about whether marijuana can help us with chronic pain and to decrease opioid use. And again, we're missing the opportunity to answer that question because we cannot do studies of uh, marijuana. We can do studies of the individual chemicals, but not the entire array of chemicals that are in plant marijuana. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. 
Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call.